New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For many decades, Bill McDonough has been on the forefront of innovative design. He's been leading the culture into a positive future and challenges us with questions such as, why not design a building like a tree and a city like a forest? He reminds us being less bad doesn't mean being good. So how are we doing in the race of solving our human needs along with the planetary environmental needs? That will be the subject of today's conversation with our guest, Bill McDonough. William McDonough is an anticipatory design architect, but more than that, he is a philosopher for the 21st century and is asking some of the most critical questions we should be thinking about in these challenging times. He's the former Dean of the Architecture Department at the University of Virginia and was named Hero of the Planet by Time Magazine. He's also the winner of three U.S. presidential awards, including the Presidential Award for Sustainable Development. He's the author with his partner, Michael Brungard, of the book, Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. Join us for the next hour as we explore the critical questions we should be asking ourselves in this postmodern world with our guest, William McDonough. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, I'll be your host, Welcome to New Dimensions. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much. It's so good to be sitting down with you once more. I, I would like to have, have you catch up some, for some of our listeners who haven't heard any of our previous conversations. Just what is Cradle to Cradle? Cradle to Cradle is a way of looking at the making of things in a way that isn't cradle to grave. So it's not about make after taking and then wasting. It's about the endless resourcefulness of things so that materials and systems are seen as endlessly resourceful. And so we don't even think of life cycles and things like that because we don't see things dying. In the natural world, things grow and carbon accrues to soil and growth is good. And if we can model our systems of human production on the biological systems that celebrate the growth of soil and fecundity, but also in the last 5,000 years, humans have developed another thing that goes with the biosphere, which we call the technosphere. So there are things ever since we started banging metal 
that we can turn into new things over and over again without toxifying the biosphere. So we design into the biosphere and or the technosphere in endless resourcefulness. We use renewable power to power the system. So we use solar energy in its various forms. We use clean water and we create clean water. We can even design textile mills that clean rivers. And we have social fairness as part of the agenda. So the idea is safe, healthy materials with reverse logistics. We know where things come from. We know where they go. Materials get passports, in effect. We have renewable power, clean water, and social fairness. That's cradle to cradle. Let's talk a little bit about the technosphere. What I understand, there are some substances, once you put them together, you can never take them apart again. They're unlike maybe biological nutrients, as you say. So what happens with those? Well, they actually, you know, we can actually design things to get taken apart. Um, And certain materials we call monstrous hybrids are the ones that are really impossible to get apart, but are also potentially toxifying to the biosphere. So the technosphere, you could think of a computer or a camera or a car, and we could actually design these in the future where they're glued together with glues that come apart at higher temperatures, things like that, so that the computer just falls apart at a certain instruction. And then we can capture all the technical materials that are there as nutrients for making new things without wasting them, so to speak. So we eliminate the concept of waste. I'm thinking about like that, what is it, that big island of plastic that Mm -hmm. is floating around the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are you doing that would eliminate something like that? Well, that's that's the residue of an incredibly uh, ridiculous human behavior, which is throwing things away as if there's such a place as away. So um, the Pacific Garbage Patch, as it's known, um, it was discovered by a ship captain and a researcher from Los Angeles, Charles Moore. And we've seen six to 40 times as much plastic as plankton there. Now, from a design perspective, the first thing would be, let's recycle our plastics. Of course, we should be recycling the polymers. Our recycling rates are silly. And we can certainly get that up. But we should also stop letting things escape in the way we do into the oceans. But it also means that there is a new kind of design thinking we could apply to this, which I'm working on too, with the new chemistries, where we're designing uh, polymers that would become food for the plankton. So what, what you could do is say, we want things that will come apart in salt water, they will come apart with sunlight, various things like that, and become nutrients for the system rather than detritus that's toxifying. So that's actually possible now. You actually have some designs that are... I'm working on that as we speak. Uh-huh. And, and with uh, your chemist partner, Michael Brungard, he's probably... I'm working with yeah. the whole chemical industry yeah. on various yeah. things like this because yeah. this is going to take us all and it's going to take forever, but that's the point. See, Cradle to Cradle helps us, as acts like a fulcrum in our thinking, so we can apply leverage to that. It's a thing that does not move. It's this fundamental underpinning. Things are designed to either go back to biology or back to technology without contaminating each other. And when you say fulcrum, for those of us who don't mm-hmm. understand that concept... Archimedes, you know, the famous Greek mathematician, said, 
give me a, a fulcrum, a lever, and a place to stand, and I can move the world. So if you have a small pyramid sitting on the ground that will not move like a stone, you can stand on one side of it, for example, put a lever, a big stick over the top of it, and lift another stone on the other side with tremendous leverage because you're resting on the fulcrum. See? So if you don't have a fulcrum, all you have is a stick and a place to stand. You can only poke holes in things. You can't lift anything. You have no leverage. See? Right. So Cradle to Cradle helps us as we design products for the future to say, well, how would I do that? What what are the rules of the game? What are the principles? What What is the framework I should use? What is the protocol I can use to think about the design of things in the future? And that's what it's for. It's very clear. If it's going to be in the biosphere and some child is going to put it in their mouth or it's going to end up in the water or it's going to end up next to your skin or in your lungs, it should be designed to be safe. And so for biological nutrient products, we like to say, it's it's not okay as we have seen in the current manufacturing that we have thousands of synthetic chemicals accruing in human mother's milk by some accounts 2500 synthetic chemicals in human mother's milk things that nature would never have put there so we say let's design products that don't have that kind of thing and let's design products that are safe in the um in the biosphere so a cradle to cradle certified product is one that would be taken to that degree of concern and definition um, on inventory and then assessed against these criteria and then optimized over time because it's all about constant improvement. So that's biological material. Let's stop toxifying ourselves. And then for technical materials, let's make sure we can recapture them. And if they include things like lead, which can be used as a solder in electronics, for example, we don't want that to be released to the biosphere where it becomes a neurotoxin. If we can recapture the computer and reuse it and its materials, then we put it into technical cycles and it becomes a technical nutrient. See, lead is not a bad or a good, it's a tool, in effect. And tools' value is assigned by the intention of its use. So a hammer is not a good or a bad. It's a bad if I hit you with it. It's good if I build a house for you. See? So the tool is embedded with information by the user. And I guess the good thing about it is that then the lead can be reused over and over and over again. I mean, you right. don't have to keep digging in the earth for new exactly. lead. And we accrue what we call, you know, a materials bank of useful things, copper, lead, aluminum. Aluminum is a very interesting example because since aluminum was uh, really put into play, it used to be very valuable. Aluminum was very rare. It was as valuable as gold. Um, in ancient times, but, um, you know, strong, light, amazing metal. But I think the number is something like 75% of all the aluminum ever made is still in circulation. Quite amazing. That's amazing. Who's collecting it? Where is it being collected? All the cans are there out there. All being collected. Those cans. Because people see the value in metals. Yeah. They do see the value in metals. And so that has value. So it gets recirculated. So, Bill, you're saying that we don't have to become Luddites, so to speak. We, we, if if all goes in this direction, we won't need to give up our cars or our computers. No, heavens no. What we'll do is celebrate the abundance of intelligent things. Um, and we separate the idea of being a consumer and a customer. See, you cannot consume a television set. And it might have 4,360 chemicals in it. The last count. So these are terrifying 
prospects if we see them as part of the biosphere. On the other hand, if the, if the television or the radio, people listening right now, what a privilege to be able to listen to the radio, especially your shows and things. So those things are connected to materials that can be reutilized forever in safe, healthy ways, of course. Well, that, that's that's good news. That's good news. But now it's educating the producers of all of these things. So that's been what your focus has been. Well, on. my focus is, you know, to think about Leibniz, the great philosopher who once said, if it is possible, therefore it exists. And whole books have been written about that statement. But my job as a designer is to make it exist. Therefore, for most people, it becomes possible because they can see it. See, we render it visible. So uh, I work, for example, with Herman Miller, Steelcase, the big furniture companies, and we've designed uh, a system that they're using where their chairs can come apart in five minutes with tools you'd find in a kitchen drawer. And 15 years from now, they could go back to being polycarbonate, steel, aluminum, whatever, wherever they are. And they're designed to go back into an intelligent material pool for human benefit without contaminating the environment. It's very straightforward. And so as people start to see these things, they get inspired. And it's been very exciting to watch that. We're also using the market um, to move the demand. So we have some big announcements coming from some of the largest real estate operators in the world, for example, saying they will prefer cradle-to-cradle certified products from now on because they're just better. Well, we'll talk about that in just one moment. Mm -hmm. I'm here with Bill McDonough, William McDonough. He, along with Michael Brungard, are the authors of Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. And if you'd like to know more about his work, go to the website, mcdonough.com. And that's m-c-d-o-n-o-u-g-h.com. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. And you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Bill McDonough, and we're talking about how we make things and how we're going to remake things in the future. And you were just talking, Bill, about companies that may be looking at this with you in a different way. And how are you going about that? How are you convincing them to do it differently? Well, I think we we show that this way of working produces far higher quality products that are far more beneficial to the customers in the world instead of being less damaging or something, that they don't require regulation because there's nothing to be afraid of. 
So that can reduce cost, which for business people is quite attractive as well. But they're not being unregulated because they're trying to get away with something. They're doing something wonderful and therefore have nothing, we have nothing to fear from them. So uh, people see that there's a real cost benefit to this. The average cost of materials and systems that we work with is reduced by 20% when you do it the right way. It's quite amazing. And that's the most compelling argument of all. So it costs them less to produce it, ultimately. Maybe not retooling up for it, but ultimately. Yeah, the business propositions are quite, quite productive. And they may have to make some investments, but these are all done within normal parameters of intelligent forward business. We're also working in China at scale with these things because uh, um, there's a joint innovation dialogue going on between the United States and China around sustainable technologies, things like that. And I, I represented the White House at the, the last joint dialogue in Beijing, uh, representing the private sector. And we're just going to be doing these things as good business, not because we're being regulated, not because there's any mandate, simply because the world gets better when we behave this way. Let me give you an example. I don't believe in sewage treatment. I don't believe in sewage and I don't believe in treatment. I look at this as nutrient management. So as a child, when I heard the farmers collect our sewage in Tokyo and take it to the farmers, the, I mean, the farmers would take it to their fields, they'd compost it and then use it for fertilizer. I always thought the city and the farms were one organism as a child. I still do. So we can now look at technologies instead of treating sewage with chemicals and then throwing it in the bay and eutrophying the bay by adding too many nutrients and so on. We can extract the phosphate in the form of mineral fertilizer called struvite. We can extract the nitrogen uh, as a mineral that we spent so much money getting there using the various systems of natural gas and and, uh, taking nitrogen out of the air, Fischer-Trope systems, things like that. And then we can extract the methane gas and use it for good purposes. So we don't release it as a very toxic greenhouse gas. We get to use it as a fuel or even making new plastics, for example, from the methane. So all of a sudden, what we used to call a sewage treatment plant, which polluted the bay or the river and cost the city money to operate, is now making a 12% economic return as a fertilizer factory producing energy. Isn't that Amazing. That is so now the city is making money. The citizens are having all of their um, poop turned into something valuable, which it is. Um, the farmers get slow-release fertilizer, so they don't have any non-point source pollution because every time it rains, they don't wash all the phosphate into the bay. It's slow-release. And now the city and the farms become one organism, and they're making money all the time. And if you also start to imagine what this means relative to the fact that our phosphate in the future will be coming from a Morocco. So we each need four grams a day of phosphate. So why would I want it coming from Morocco? Um, It's going to become a strategic mineral. And just like we don't want our fuel or our oil or energy or things like that coming from long distances, forming fear and anxiety and greed and all those things, why not have it locally when it's right here? Well, Bill, I I see the benefit of this, and 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 very excited about it. And then I see the the force that wants to keep things like they are. Like I, I'm thinking about 
all the workers and all the investment in these sewage plants in every town, every village, mm-hmm. in the whole U.S., maybe all around the world. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's a huge economic shift, and that's always well, painful, isn't not it? Not really. No, see, this, that's what's very important about the design aspect of this. You have to design into that system. These things are bolt-on to the existing systems. So we're not saying tear down the old stuff. We're saying add it to the back end of the sludge pipes and extract the nutrients. And so it's really just a, a equipment add to existing things. So the same people can keep working. They're just making money for the city now instead of costing it money. That's all. Oh, now this this ought to get people's attention. Yeah, well, because... that's the point. It's a design assignment that you have to optimize First, we take inventory of the assets. In this case, you don't look at it and go, yuck, sewage. You go, oh, phosphate, nitrogen, methane, water. Oh, all good, all clean, all essential. Got it. Optimize them. Bring them value. That's what Cradle to Cradle would say. Make it valuable. Then optimize the system. So how close are we to that particular? Oh, it's underway. Oh, the phosphate extraction system was invented in uh, British Columbia about 10 years ago by a sewage treatment operator who was having trouble with his sludge pipes because they were all clogging up with minerals. So he decided to put them into a vortex, send them in through a high spin, and see if they would stay in suspension. What they did is turn into little white pearls of struvite phosphate. Beautiful. And then he said, wait a minute, we can sell this. It's Just by spinning it, uh-huh. they, he made these right, pearls. Right. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, and it was just he was just trying to solve a problem of his pipes were shrinking in diameter because they were getting this mineral collecting on the sides of the pipes. So he had to tear out his pipes all the time just to get them to stay large enough to make the sewage sludge flow. So all of a sudden he invented something immensely valuable. So they're doing it, did you say in Vancouver? Vancouver, and they're piloted here in San Francisco. It's- they're doing it in Portland, Oregon. Virginia, oh, it's underway. And the, the Dutch have already put out an edict as a nation that in, by 2020 they won't be importing phosphate anymore. And that's a very interesting thing to hear from a country like the Netherlands because they are, are really quite astonishing in terms of agriculture. It's surprising. If you look at the world's economic uh, agricultural exporters, the largest ones in the world, guess who the first two are? The United States, and guess who's number two? How about the Netherlands? I would never. A country the size of Maryland? Oh, my goodness. Is the second largest agricultural exporter by dollar amount? Think about this. Over Canada or Brazil? Really? It's amazing. Now, they they export high-value things like tomatoes and flowers. But they, um, you know, they're not going to be wanting to get phosphate fertilizers from a royalty in Northern Africa that is subject to political disruption and so on and so forth. Or China? Why would they want... Fertilizer coming from that far away with that kind of cost and and that kind of hegemony potentially over them. So, of course, they should capture their nutrients. And they're doing it. Yeah, they're, they're going to. Of course, they're. And so Sweden now has announced they're going to do it too. It's beautiful. So this, as as more countries sign on, then it makes it others are noticing, like China. Well, what uh, I'm doing, well, what we're doing with China is we are working with a very large fund that we're creating for venture, for cradle to cradle technology for China. And the Chinese will be funding it. And we're going around the world looking for those things that are truly beneficial to the planet, where humans can become a tool of the natural world. Once again, you see, the world gets better with our footprint. Instead of us all bemoaning our 
horrible ecological footprint. That's because we stomp around leaving behind asphalt, which is really, you know, two words assigning blame from <laughs> photosynthetic perspective. And, you know, if we look at it and say, let's leave behind wetlands and, you know, things like that, leave beneficial landscapes, then, you know, the world gets better. So we're looking at funding all those things with high-speed venture. And then the great thing about China is they can go to scale with velocity. So it's big and it's fast. They move fast because they're... they're they can. Yeah, they, they, they can dictate from above. Mm -hmm. and just may, And I guess that's really important with one and a half billion people that right. they're working with. That's huge. It and, is, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's all the issues one has to deal with in terms of uh, people's relationships and rights and things like that. Very critical. But as far as technology um, explosion, there's no place like China. I mean, when... They decided they wanted high-speed trains in three and a half years. They now have 348 of them. And they lost two of them. Yes. They crashed Very into sad. each other. Yes. Very sad. But let's stop and remember, they have 348 in three years, and we don't have any. Yeah. Right? That's right. How does that happen? So, you know, there's a lot of issues around that because they, they had in intellectual property issues. They, they took things from the Germans you know, and use them and then they build on them and then they then they decide to protect them themselves after the you know, the enabling technologies. It's a very complex system and situation. But one has to start to work with these and clarify the intellectual property, clarify the 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 funding. And what I'm interested in personally as an American is I wanna see the factories come back to the United States. And having grown up in Japan and Hong Kong and watching the Japanese auto companies come to the United States, if it was 1947 and we had just blown them off the face of the planet and somebody came to Canton, Mississippi and said, there's going to be a giant Japanese automobile factory right here someday, no way, right? They can't make cars. We just beat them in a war. Forget it. Yeah. And now we give them tax breaks. Well, we will have Chinese factories all over the United States in 50 years, no question. And we'll be happy that we have them. So what I'm looking at, what are the technologies we need, like sewage treatment plants becoming nutrient management systems? How do we get that to scale quickly? Because it'll benefit China, which benefits the environment, which benefits all of us. And if they can take it to scale, they can collapse the cost by an order of magnitude, probably. They can build these things for a tenth of what we can. But what we don't want them to do is send us all the stuff. What we want them to do is send us the factories so that we can make the stuff here. And you think that that is the future? You think that that's, that's actually the one I'm focusing to, on? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because in the end, it's going to become logistics and cost of moving stuff around. Why should we? So you got to understand if you use your own phosphate as a city to feed the farmers who feed the city, it's an inherently local cycle. You see, all sustainability in the end is local, just like politics. You find a way to become native to a place. And that is a local event. So they, we don't want the phosphate from China. We want the phosphate from here. So it has to become an inherently local business. That's why renewable power is such a marvelous thing, because it's inherently local. You exactly, see? exactly. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about asphalt, because you, you mentioned it mm -hmm. earlier. And, and just I can just say the whole world is just full of asphalt mm -hmm. or, or blacktop or mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these big shopping malls and everything, mm -hmm. and it's just cement on cement on mm -hmm. cement. And 
So what do you see as an option that's a good, uh, not sustainable, but good for the planet option? Well, it's, it's right there in front of us. It's, it's soft, absorbing, green, cool things. And so the first thing we do when we work on projects is we say, if it's gray, make it green. If it's hard, make it soft. So we just do that immediately. So if we don't need to drive on it, we're going to dig it up and make it soft, you know, okay. like that. We'll talk more about that in just a second. If you want to look up all this information, you can go to the website c2ccertified.org and see the, the letter C, the numeral 2, the letter C for cradle to cradle, c2ccertified.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with William McDonough, and we're talking about how we can look at how we make things to benefit humankind and to benefit the planet. Uh, Bill, we're talking, we were just leaving off with talking about asphalt and mm -hmm. cement, and you said leave things green, leave them soft. Can you say more about that? Sure. I think that the thing to look at here is that we're looking at the concept of a beneficial footprint not a negative one. If we leave behind asphalt, what we are leaving behind typically is, is impermeability, something that heats up, etc. right? So the water can be toxified by it, that runs off in sheets, we have all kinds of stormwater problems, etc., etc., etc. So we can look at it that way and say, how would I make it soft? How do I make it absorb water? That's why when I did the Rouge auto plant for Ford, the roof is a giant green roof. And when you walk out on the roof to work on the equipment or something, it's cool and pleasant. Instead of walking out, it's 140 degrees and you're, you know, you have, your feet are burning off. And so it's just a different way of looking at the world. Plus you're providing habitat for hundreds of species of animals at the same time and absorbing water and providing energy efficiency and all kinds of other delightful prospects. But you're also making oxygen, let's remember that. So one of the problems I have with modern environmentalism is people say they're reducing their carbon uh, and that's all they tell you is they're gonna reduce their carbon by 20% or by 2020. Well, all they're saying is what they're not. And that's, if you think about it commercially, that's insane. That would be like going in a store and finding a jar of brown goop and it says, not peanut butter. Is this helpful? <laughs> you know, is this helping us? What you're not? See, I love carbon. We don't have an energy problem. We have a materials problem. We have carbon, a material, in the atmosphere, the wrong place. You so see. carbon has really been getting bad press lately. You see, we are carbon. Uh -huh. Right? You and I are both carbon. Add water and you've got us, you know? So, and some minerals. So there we are. And so if you don't like carbon, you might as well shoot yourself, drive and blow away because you are carbon. The, but a toxin is a material in the wrong place, right? Lead in a child's mouth, for example. Well, carbon in the atmosphere is a toxin. It causes climate change. It causes ocean acidification. We are on in the process of double glazing the planet 
and and having sea rise and we're also 40 i think three percent of the of the atmospheric carbon produced by humans since 1850 is now in the oceans and so we're seeing acidification this is carbonic acid and by end of century it could well be that we'll hit 7.9 ph and we'll start to see the the destruction of the bottom of the food chain because mollusks won't be able to form shells and skeletons things like that so so this is really scary if we intend to destroy the planet we, we couldn't be doing much better and i see design as the first signal of human intention see so what is our intention as a species at this point we are the dominant species and we are in the anthropocene era we're in the era of global change caused by humans you see mm -hmm. so we have to go back to fundamentals if you look at carbon and the history of carbon over the millennia the the way the world worked and uh, and it really is, becomes very clear if you just think about a log burning in a fireplace and your physics professor will tell you, well, that's entropy. And what you're seeing is chaos as this burning goes on with the minerals and the water and everything just dispersing into the atmosphere, never to come back together because they're disaggregating. But if you look for what I would look for, having grown up in Asia, which is the other, what would it be? Well, it would be negative entropy. What would the other, What is the opposite of that chaotic entropy of the carbon going into the atmosphere? Well, if you think long and hard, it's not physics. And that's why you won't really find it there. It's biology. It's the log itself is an aggregated form of carbon from the atmosphere by solar energy. Think about that. It's the tree. It's the collector of ag disaggregated uh, entropy of the sun, 93 million miles away. It's eight minutes and it's wireless and we have 10,000 times more of it than we need to operate our systems. We should be a nuclear powered planet, of course, in our reactors exactly where we need it, 93 million miles away. And, and then you start to think about Einstein and equals MC squared. And you can do the math because having grown up in Japan, I saw Hiroshima as a baby. Mm. And I want to know how that happened. So when I asked my physics professor in college, he said, study the special theory of relativity and here's the formula, E equals MC squared. The answer you're looking for is in this formula. And I, but I can't do you know, differential equations, so I'm an artist. So I said, I just stared at it until I got it. And I stared at it and I said, well, if I'm going to do this formula, rather than just say I can't do it because it's too hard or something, I just looked until I saw the number. The number is C. It's a constant. It's the only number in that formula that's a constant. So, because squared is a relationship. So if you look at C... And mass changes. Well, but do that formula. Just do the math for one minute. I wanted to know how Hiroshima disappeared. Well, here it is. And why was Einstein afraid? See, remember, a tool's value is put there by the intention of the user. See, so why was he afraid of that formula being misused? All right. So look at the formula. C is a very big number, 186,000 miles per second. So it's so big, it's infinity for my little brain. Uh, just in case it's not big enough, let's square it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's almost infinity squared. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you've got a number so huge you can hardly even begin to imagine. All right, that means that if M is in any way a positive number, as in one atom, then E is almost infinite. You have almost infinite energy from one atom. That is the atom bomb. Wait, wait, there it is. E, wait, I didn't e follow that. E equals mc squared. E equals, okay. If c squared is so huge you can't imagine it. And m is one atom, positive number, 
than E is so huge, you can't imagine it. Right. And there goes Hiroshima. Yeah. Boom. That's the atom bomb. But then look at it for a minute. It's only E and M, you see. It's energy and mass. It's physics and chemistry. Physics is the sun and the nuclear power, as far as our design system here goes. M is the earth and its chemicals. We don't have mass income. We have solar income. It's mm -hmm. the only form of income on the planet. So we don't have mass income. It's not raining phosphate. You see, we have an occasional meteorite and a little bit of cosmic dust. That's about it. So we have to take all the materials that are here on this planet and treat them as very precious things that we reutilize in use cycles. Some for the health of soil and the biological systems, our own nutrition, and others for the sake of infinite reuse systems of metals, polymers, things like that. And we power it with renewable energy. So that's where that goes. And then you see biology shows up with Crick and Watson in 50, uh, 53. And Crick spent nine years looking at what it meant to be a living thing. He called it the search for the nature of vitalism. Vitalism, vitalism. nice one. Yeah. And so he decided in order to be alive, you had to have three characteristics. Growth, isn't that interesting? You have to have growth. Of course you do. If you're not growing, you're dying. And so for businesses, I say celebrate your growth, but make good things. And then we want more of you. See, if all you do is pour asphalt, you're destroying the world's photosynthetic capacity and you're heating us up. See? So think about growing things that we want, not what we don't want. And, and then um, he said you had to have free energy from outside the system if you're going to grow. Of course you do. You have to have income if you're going to grow. Well, for business, that's revenue. For the world, it's solar energy. Fine. So you have to grow solar energy. Sounds like a tree. Sounds like a child. You know? And these things aren't zero emissions. When I hear people say they want to have zero emissions or zero, zero you know, energy buildings or something, it's silly. I mean, Toyota has an ad with a tree, and it says, our aim, zero emissions. It, this is terrifying science, if you think about it, because that tree emits oxygen, you silly people. Right. It emits birds, it emits right. flowers, it emits fruit. What are we crazy? That's not zero emissions. Positive emissions, that's what we need. So positive emissions. Positive emissions. So that we're actually adding to... The world's getting better. Yeah, the world getting better. The world right. gets better. And, and then, and then it, he also decided you had to have an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. That's cradle to cradle. Safe, healthy things in right. cycles. You see? So we're working with a, a finite mass, so to mm -hmm. speak, but the... The catch is that we have this income in solar energy. Right. That's coming in. That makes us different than some dead planet out there that Absolutely. has nothing. And, and the tricky part today is that use of fossil fuels is using ancient solar energy. That was carbon captured from the atmosphere and sequestered in soil, you see. And now we pull it back up and it's the black dirt and we burn it, and we put the carbon back in the atmosphere. It's the opposite of the design we are meant to be celebrating here. Right. See? Right. So that that carbon really wants to be going into soil, not into the atmosphere. Yes. So, And we can capture the solar energy beautifully now. We can, I mean, solar collectors are now a commodity. We're below a dollar a watt. We always wondered when it would get there. When I, when I was the dean at the University of Virginia, it was $10 a watt in the mid-90s, right. and now it's 80 cents. So the balance of system is the only issue now. It's just all the stuff we need to put them up. But the marvelous thing is they're inherently local. 
they are inherently strengthening local economies because they're inherently local power. So it's I was so wondering, Bill, in, in, let's say, solar cells, are, are we digging into the earth to, to make them? How, how are we making this? Yeah, well, they're silicon and they're silica and they're silicon and they're um, even cadmium and tellurium and things like that. But see, once you take those materials and you put them safely somewhere doing their job of making electricity, you can make them what we call products of service. They can be used over and over again. They because don't get used know, up. Yeah, they don't get used up. They're just, they go through use periods. So you might find after 30 years, there's a new version that's more productive, and we can remanufacture these into those. We just don't throw them away. See, we keep them as a resource. We know where they are, and it's like banking materials. So cadmium, which is a, is a seriously you know, heavy metal problem, because it can be carcinogenic and mutagenic as well. Um, you know, if we put and it... And is it rare? Hmm. Relatively, but not that much, no. Um, that, and it's mined you know, often with zinc and things like that. It's, you, you get it in, in, in mining. But, but once we put it there, we can sequester it into utility cycles forever. It's just that you wouldn't want to use it on a, making a child's shirt bright no. red like we used to. Yes. Right? That would be foolish because now you're putting it in the biosphere. You're putting it next to skin. You're putting it in laundry. You're putting it in the water. Forget it. But putting it out as a solar collector that's on a roof that we know where it is and it's not not being put into contact with the biosphere. That's perfectly legitimate use of the material. So what about cold fusion? We hear something about cold fusion. Is, is that something for an energy source? What do you know? I'm absolutely curious about that. I know very little about uh -huh. it because I'm not a scientist. But I, I, um, I'm fascinated by it and I think I'm, I'm surprised that it's coming back. We got such a strange reputation because of the people in Utah that, you know, came out with announcements that weren't able to be verified through conventional, um, you know, resources. But I think it's fascinating. And I think there's, there are people at Berkeley doing this or people in Italy doing this. It's just fascinating. It's coming back up. And, and the physicists I talk to about it, they all say, gee, it sounds very possible. They don't poo-poo it at all. I think there was a big PR nightmare around it at mm -hmm. some point, but... The physics of it apparently are, are not insane. So who knows? Who knows? I'm here with William McDonough. He's the author of Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. And if you'd like to know more about his work and the work of Cradle to Cradle, you can go to the website mcdonough.com. Right. And that's m-c-d-o-n-o-u-g-h.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with William McDonough, and we're talking about renewable abundance. That's a word that you've you've used quite a bit, Bill. Um, let's talk about what's next. What are you up to these days? What what's lighting your fire? Well, I'm I'm doing a whole bunch of things. One is focusing on the question: What's next? Is what's next? Because there's so few people designing things today where they have what's next in mind. I keep seeing all these new gee whiz technologies and you ask people, well, what's next? And they'll tell you what they come, want to come to you with next year. They don't tell you what's going to happen to the thing they just made because it's a piece of toxic nonsense, for example, from a material perspective. But for what's next for me? I've been doing a project in New Orleans that I created with Brad Pitt called Make It Right. And we founded that to help bring people back home. And those houses are critically inspired. The materials were looked at carefully. The kids are losing their asthma. People are getting to come home. They have very low energy bills. Sometimes it's, you know, nothing except the administrative charge. And uh, their mortgages are $400 and they can afford to live there. And it's a marvelous thing. So I'm very, very excited about our continuing work there. And Brad and I have been working very hard on that. We're gonna do 150 houses, we're at 90 now, and we have 60 more to go. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm also designing a house for the super poor. I've, I've decided since I get to design for some of the wealthiest people in the world, I might as well design for the poorest as well, otherwise I'd be out of balance. So I'm working on a new kind of house that would be made out of very inexpensive, safe materials that would be able to be assembled even by children uh, without tools. It's a whole new way of making buildings. and. It's actually quite interestingly um, a, uh, a outgrowth of some of the thinking that I've been doing around Buckminster Fuller's work because when you look at his history of continuous tension and discontinuous compression that came out of his observations of Kenneth Nelson's sculpture and became tensegrity structure, the issue there is that those things are not habitable. You know, we're not talking about the domes here, we're talking about these other sculptural objects. But the idea of continuous tension and discontinuous compression, I'm actually designing buildings where the pieces all snap together, but they make a normal building. Is it like Legos? It's like Legos, <laughs> but it's it's a real building. It has, you know, it's self-flashing. It uh, keeps the water out. It, Wait, when uh, you say self-flashing, that's a technical term. It's what technical do you mean? Term. It means that, that the, the parts uh, cover each other so that water will continuously drip with gravity down to the ground and go away. So, or into the cisterns. But it's basically, you know, the building is waterproof. And I've seen, uh, I've been to Ireland to uh, the Newgrange mm -hmm. and gone into that structure that's over 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And that's, the roof mm -hmm. is like that. It's been dry for 5,000 years right. because of the way they laid the stones. Yeah. Gravity is not just a good idea, it's the law. Yeah, the water obeys it. So, so you're saying these these houses can be built by children? Well, I mean, by yeah, kids. they could. I mean, they're that simple. They're, let's put it that way. And they're and they're, it's a it's like a snap together system, but it can produce houses of any description in any culture, and it's made from materials that are available to us for basically for free. It's the the things we don't have in our landfills or waste systems that can go back to food grade plastic or whatever. And we can take these materials and with heat and pressure, we can clean them up. We can even fire retard them using phosphates instead of, um, instead of the bromines. And so they're safe. And then we and can they make panels. Gas, out they don't give gas right. that's bad for you. Right. And then we can assemble them very easily into these simple buildings. And I just did it. I mean, the, 
I, I, I set out to do it, and I realized I couldn't get it done with the engineers I was working with, so I asked everybody to stop because they kept trying to make an efficient building. And, they, and they're using conventional thinking, you know, structural panels of, with foam in them and things like that. And finally, I just said, no, let me do it myself. And I thought about it for six months, and then I got it. And my breakthrough happened when I said, I'm going to make a house that can be built by children in a day without tools. Once I gave myself that sort of conceptual assignment, then all the parts fell into place very quickly. It's very beautiful. So how do you work when you work on a problem like that? What do you, like, put yourself to sleep thinking about it? How do that you, kind how, of thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Once it, once it starts to move, it's very quick. I just start drawing. I can't stop until I'm done. And uh, I it's remember, really beautiful. There's a, uh, some quote from Einstein at some point when he said, um, if he had an hour to solve a problem, he would spend the first 55 minutes asking the right question, right. and then the last five minutes, you can solve it. And, right. and it seems That's like... That's what this is. That's exactly right. So if I said, what's the most efficient, low-cost building I can make for the people in Haiti or something, I would be asking the wrong question because I'd be working with conventional things and I'd produce what they're producing, which are these horrible buildings here. Little, they, they look like gas chamber ovens to me. We've seen this before. It's not pretty. So... Um, you know, you, you, you can't use conventional thinking. So, so say again the question you asked yourself. How could I design a building that could be assembled by children in one day without tools? Wow. They had no tools. Yeah. 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 So it all snaps together. It's obvious how it goes together. You can't make a mistake because it only goes together the right way. And it's very simple. It's a beautiful little house. It's got a 10-foot ceiling on the inside with a waffle grid ceiling so the air can move up and out the little top windows. It's very graceful proportions, very dignified. And you can add to the side. You can add bedroom modules or kitchen, whatever you want. And the kitchen panel just slots into place so you could put it on the outside on the porch if you want to or turn it around face the inside. It's very simple. How lovely. And it just reminds me, social justice and fairness mm -hmm. has always been important to you. And that's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting, not, not many architects have really been, or design people have really been focused on that. But that's a big focus for you. Can you yeah. talk about that? Well, I think it's, it's such a fundamental underpinning of any good behavior. The, the, the thing that's marvelous about the ability to work across so many different textures and fields of, of human activity is that what, what we call the triple top line thinking. It's, it's like thinking about solar energy. It's a form of income. So manager's job is to worry about the bottom line, but then they have to be efficient. And being efficient is not a good. You see, if you're an efficient terrorist, you're worse. You know? So efficiency per se is not a good. It's just a tool. Right? And what if you're what if you're doing something perfectly like Six Sigma perfection, but you're doing the wrong thing? Well, now you're perfectly wrong, okay? So the real question is, what is the right thing to do? And then we go about doing it efficiently. See? So it's top line thinking. So it's economic revenue, bringing in the business. Leave it to the managers to leave a profit, but bring in the revenue. That's the executive job. And it's the same with social issues. If you go straight to the social corner of our triangle and say, what is fairness? 
Well, you see, if you're moving from economy toward social equity, you would pass through what? Um, people earning a living wage. That would be fairness in the economy. If you get to the fairness corner uh, with their economic perspective, you could get to things like, are men and women paid the same for the same work? You know, So it's fairness first, money second. But it's those kinds of questions, and they're real. And then when you get just to fairness itself, you get to racism, sexism, things that have nothing to do with money or the environment. See, But that's a fundamental question, human rights. Because if we look at a child being born anywhere in the world, and say, oh, woe is us, we have 10 billion people coming to the planet, right. and that little kid being born is a population problem, the minute you call that child a population problem, human rights cease to exist. We should welcome every child into the world with love and creativity and celebrate their creativity and their, their contributions that they get to make creatively. That is really important for every child, that they are loved, and they're given that opportunity to be a creative contributor to society. So it is fundamental, there's no question. So you're saying that we can actually survive on the planet in a, in a good way. We can thrive. Healthy. We can thrive. Uh, yeah. We can thrive on the planet. Yeah. Think There's about a... the ants. Just look at the ants. They have, I think, four times the body mass of humans. And we don't worry about their population. Oh, wait. You They're mean they busy. weigh four times? If you right. weighed every ant on mm -hmm. the planet, they right. would weigh four times more than, the than every human on than the planet. Than all the humans, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's some number like that. Yeah. But see, they're not a problem because they recycle everything. They do their job. They all have jobs. Isn't that they're amazing? Right. I don't see any unemployed ants. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and they're out there working away, you know, doing their thing. And they have all kinds of strange social behaviors too. You know, they have slaves, they have child labor, they have all kinds of weird things going on. But anyway, they, um, but they, but they cycle everything and they do an essential job of decomposing matter and moving it around. If you go to rainforest, the ants are very busy. Yeah. And uh, and yet they, they, they thrive, you know, in their world without destroying it. So so if we relook at the way we make things and turn everything into a nutrient of right. some sort and recycle that which and sequester that which is poisonous right. and reuse Put it. everything to reuse cycles. Yeah. Right. So things back to biology, safely to biology. Things back to technology, safely back to technology. And we have the systems that allow us to do it. See, then you can celebrate this. I mean, if I make a carpet out of caprolactam, nylon 6, and polyolefin back, I can separate them with gravity. And after a shredder, it's very simple. So I can use that infinitely. The, the uh, United States, we have 1.4 billion pounds of carpet waste every year. Imagine if all that was continuously being reused to make carpet using solar energy and safe chemistry. Well, then every time you want to change your carpet from blue to pink, instead of destroying the planet, all you're doing is making jobs. You see? That's all that happened. You use solar energy and you use the materials and they're all safe and healthy. And so you want to change the color of your carpet. So what? It's fun. You just made jobs. You know, Go ahead. Change the carpet all you want. Change it every week. It doesn't matter. Have a good time. <laughs> Have a good time. That's your, that's your motto. Have a good time. Live in beauty and... And health and thrive. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for being part of our broadcast today. It's a privilege. I've been speaking with William McDonough, and if you'd like to know more about his work and the work of Cradle to Cradle, you can go to the website mcdonough.com, right. and that's m-c-d-o-n-o-u-g-h.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3455. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.